Let's pray as we begin. Holy Spirit, you are the one who shows us the way. You are a light for our path. And as we hear from your word, as we reflect on your word, we pray that you would shine the light of all your goodness, of all your hope, of all your promise, of a better world, of redemption, of salvation, that you would shine that light into our hearts today. Speak your truth and your grace to us, Jesus. Amen. So today we are beginning a new sermon series for Lent, and we're calling it The Harder Invitation. Over the past month or so, we've encountered Jesus at his most inviting. We've seen him reach out to people on the fringes of society, like the rich tax collector Zacchaeus, or the morally outcast Samaritan woman at the well. We've heard how he offered himself as the source of the bread of life, as the one who can satisfy our spiritual hunger, and also as living water, who can quench the deepest longings of our souls. Jesus even saved the day in a way that we found curious, but significant by miraculously turning water into wine and thereby revealing his glory and his generosity, the abundance of what he offers. It's all so inviting and so obviously good news. But now things start to change. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, and he invites us to join him in that. But it's not what we expected. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about finding yourself, finding out who you really are. It's a question of identity, and we are obsessed with identity in our culture. Who am I? What is my life for? I think every one of us goes through a time, maybe more than one season, of figuring out who you are, of searching for your identity. After I finished high school, I took a year off and went to Southeast Asia. I was a pretty confused teenager. I had rejected the Christian faith in which I was raised, and now I wanted to see the world. I wanted to explore my options. And so I traveled to Thailand, where I taught English in the northern part of the country. But for the first couple of months, I lived in Bangkok and studied Thai. While I was there, I met all kinds of people at the hostel where I was staying and at the language school where I was studying, people who were searching for something. Most of them were seeking experiences of beauty and pleasure, usually involving a beach and various Thai curries, often washed down by mango and sticky rice. Many people I met wanted to have an adventure or to learn about a new culture. Some were even trying to go deeper and find themselves, explore spiritual things. Here in Matthew 16, Jesus talks about finding your true self, and he describes it in a way that's the opposite of what we might have been hoping for. He says that he is going to die, and that if we want to follow him, if we want to be his disciples, we have to die with him and lose our lives for him. Only then will we find ourselves. Only then will we grasp who we really are and why we're here. So first, we need some context for the passage we've read. It marks an important turning point in the whole Gospel of Matthew. In verse 21, at the start of our reading, 
we saw that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From that time on, signals something new has begun. Jesus would now turn towards Jerusalem on a journey that would lead him to the cross. He tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen. Well, he begins to explain it. Apparently, it's going to be a learning process for them. It's going to require some repetition. He explains that he would be killed in Jerusalem. And you can understand that this would have been really bad news. It would have caught them off guard. But what makes this even more of a turning point, even more of a nasty shock to the disciples, is that Jesus had just given them some really good news. If you have your Bibles open, you can read the whole of the preceding exchange. In verse 13 of this chapter, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they knew that was Jesus, that he was referring to himself. He'd called himself the Son of Man before. And so they answer him. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He continues, but who do you say I am? And Simon steps up. Simon replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. And I tell you that you are Peter. And here he renames Simon, calling him Peter. Because Peter means rock. So Jesus is playing with words here. I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter saw who Jesus really was, or it was revealed to him more accurately. Everyone else thought Jesus was a prophet, special, but a prophet, nothing more. What did prophets do? They always pointed ahead to something or someone in the future. They told you the way to go. They brought a word from God. They still do that or try to do that. The purported prophets of our culture. Here's the way to get rich. Here's the way to be happy. The way to look great. To impress people. To achieve inner peace. To become healthy. Here's how to find yourself. Save yourself. Do this. Here's the formula. Here's the book. Here's how it can happen. But Jesus says... I am the way. He doesn't point to a way. He says, I am it. And I have come as the one, the only one, who can truly save you. Not to tell you how to work harder for your salvation, that you have to do more. He pointed to himself, unlike any other prophet. And when Peter recognizes that and recognizes Jesus for who he is, Jesus renames him and says that he will build his church on him and that the gates of Hades, all the strength of evil, will not be able to stand in its way. So this is the verse about which many books have been written. This is the verse that Roman Catholic Christians take as proof that the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is, appointed, is God's appointed successor to Peter. This is sometimes referred to as apostolic succession. Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians have disagreed, sometimes violently, on how to interpret this verse 
for 500 years. Thank God there's way less violence than there used to be in that regard. And if you come to membership class, Nick will talk about some of that. And if you join me for the newcomers to after the service, we can talk about that too if you're interested. But all Christians agree on the real point that Jesus is making here. And some of those disagreements obscure what we have in common. And that is that the church only exists when people make the confession of faith that Peter makes here. His confession of what is true is the rock on which God is able to build his church. The confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who saves us because we cannot save ourselves, and yet we're always trying to. And that Jesus is only able to do that because he is the son of the living God. And you know, right now, with the Alpha series we're running on Wednesday nights, we're in the thick of that discussion. We have different views of Jesus, but everyone in that room is there because they have been drawn in by this question. This question that no matter whether the church is having a good day or a bad day, seems to recur constantly, that never goes away. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Is it possible, if you're here today with that question on your mind, is it possible that Jesus really is the one you've been searching for your whole life? If that's a question you'd like to find the answers to, join us this week for a meal and some discussion on Wednesday night. And if you'd like to talk to someone after the service about that, you could talk to me and Hannah Mack. I'm going to make you stand up. She doesn't want to do it. There she is. Hannah, she stood up very briefly. Did you catch that? Hannah is our Alpha coordinator, and we'd love to have you join us on Wednesday night. So Jesus blesses Peter, and he says all these really encouraging things to him. That's what has just happened right before this passage we read. But then Peter messes up. Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem where he will be killed. And Peter takes him aside. And what does he do? He rebukes Jesus, the one he's just named as the son of the living God. He tells him off. He says, no, I think you've got this wrong, son of the living God. Never, Peter says. He says it twice. This will never happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he rips into Peter. In recent weeks, we've seen Jesus speak with such tenderness and warmth to people on the margins of society. And he could also be confrontational and hard on the religious leaders of his day. But what he says here to Peter is in another realm entirely. He is harsher here than anywhere else in the Gospels with anyone he calls Peter Satan. It's almost a curse. Why does Jesus go that far, especially in relation to this man who he's just said he will build his church upon? Well, Peter had gotten something important right, but it was not the whole truth of what God was doing. And on its own, in the way that Peter had twisted it, it was a lie of the devil. Peter had identified Jesus as the son of the living God, the son of man. He would have been familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the one called the son of man. 
For example, in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Peter had rightly understood that Jesus was this figure of great power and glory who would rule forever and whose kingdom of justice and righteousness would never be destroyed. But he was so caught up in his narrow view of that kingdom and his ambition for the role he might play in it, for what it would mean to him and his friends, the other disciples, that he snapped when Jesus said he must suffer and die that it was necessary for him to die, that it was even God's plan for him to die. Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to defeat evil, not with power and strength, but rather by laying down his power and making himself weak, by being humiliated and put to death, that the salvation of the world would only come through his failure and defeat. And Peter, for his part, refused to accept it. I read something recently by an American journalist whose job it is to review political biographies and memoirs. The article was titled, I Read These Books So You Don't Have To. So, for example, think of Barack Obama's The Promised Land or The Audacity of Hope or Marco Rubio's memoir, American Dreams. Maybe Marco Rubio didn't come immediately to mind for you. Rubio is a U.S. senator from Florida who ran for the Republican nomination in 2016. And in his book, the first person who Rubio thanks in the acknowledgement section is Jesus. He writes, I want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ whose willingness to suffer and die for my sins will allow me to enjoy eternal life. The second person he thanks is his lawyer, not his wife, not his mentor or publisher, but his very wise lawyer, Bob Barnett. I'm glad Senator Rubio thanks Jesus. I agree with him. I believe it's true that Jesus suffered and died so we can have eternal life. But when Jesus first talks about his suffering and death here in Matthew, he says something quite different. He invites us to take up our crosses and to join him in that suffering not to rush ahead to the enjoyment of eternal life. And then there's the lawyer, Marco Rubio's lawyer, one of Washington's most powerful and accomplished legal minds. Isn't that how we all want it to go? We get the blood of Jesus, the benefit of his sacrifice, and then we're quick to lawyer up when the dog-eat-dog realities of the world intrude. Dallas Willard calls this the phenomenon of vampire Christians. We want the blood, we want the salvation, and then we're off. We're off doing other things, not taking up our crosses. Peter reacts in a similar way here. He offers himself as chief counsel to the Lord, but only on his terms. You think you have to suffer and die? Jesus, never. I won't allow it. Peter had forgotten that there's another prophetic tradition in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. The prophet Isaiah writes about a suffering servant who would be exalted and lifted up by God, both before whom kings would shut their mouths and who would justify his people and bring healing. 
At the same time, it says in Isaiah 53 that this figure would take up our pain and bear our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. You see, Jesus, in a way that not even the most brilliant theologian could have imagined, fulfills the prophecy about the Son of Man coming in power and glory, as well as the prophecies about the suffering servant who would bear our sin by pouring out his life. That is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That is the answer to all those questions. Is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? Who is he? For our part, we want the power and the glory without the humility and the suffering. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, because he has gone, Peter has gone from being the rock to being a stumbling block. Just as Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, Peter was whispering the same lies, that you don't have to suffer, that you can take the kingdom by force through your achievements in your strength and your power. You can arrange it for yourself. So Jesus now teaches all the disciples about the centrality of the cross for those who want to follow him, for those who want to receive the gift of abundant life that he promises. When he says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross, Jesus is letting us know that he didn't go to the cross to relieve us of suffering and hardship. No, he went to the cross so that the crosses in our lives, the suffering that's inevitable, that some of you are bowed under the weight of right now, would bring us closer to him, would help us to see him more clearly, would make us shine reflecting his light, and in the end would make us like him, like Jesus. I think it's important to stop here and to note that the cross for us is something so ordinary. My son Calum and I were at Costco yesterday, and I, every time I go to Costco in the weekend, I swear I'll never do it again, but there we were. There we were. And we were trying to get out of the parking lot because you want to get in and get out as fast as possible. This person wouldn't let us in. And guess what was hanging from his rearview mirror? A cross. I said, I guess he didn't take up his cross and follow Jesus today. I judged him. A lot of judging going on at Costco. How ordinary is the cross for us? We wear it around our neck. It hangs in our cars Even if that's not you, we sing about it so easily. But the cross was terrible. The cross was a symbol of torture, the most humiliating, awful death. I've heard preachers reach for comparables in our culture. The electric chair, the gallows. Those things, I find, are too removed from my experience. The cross was the most horrible end to a life the crushing of hope that you can imagine. Let's not minimize it or domesticate it. When Jesus calls calls us to take up our crosses, he bids us come and die. That's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer described the cost of discipleship, nothing less. If you try to save your life, if you try to find yourself apart from God, you will lose your life. But if you submit yourself to God and lose your life for him, you will find it.
About a year and a half ago, I went on a pilgrimage in Portugal and Spain called the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. I was a backpacker once again, but this time was different because I was on foot and everybody was walking in the same direction. It was weird and wonderful. However, we didn't all have the same beliefs. Most of the people I met were not Christians. Some of them just liked to hike and wanted a cheap vacation. But I had a lot of amazing conversations with people who were actively seeking a better life out of a sense of disappointment at what trying to gain the whole world had been like for them and what they saw going on in society around them. And every time I met someone, I made a point of asking them, why are you doing the Camino? Why are you on this pilgrimage? Is the reason spiritual? And with some people, if they were open to discussing those questions, I would share that part of the tradition of pilgrim of Christian pilgrimage over the centuries has always been to repent. Repentance is at the heart of pilgrimage. And not a lot of people knew what that was. Some were interested, some not at all. But repentance means to turn around. It means to change your mind, to change your direction. It means that your view of things is transformed. When Jesus calls us to take up our crosses, and to find our true identity in losing our lives for him, he's talking about repentance. And so if you want a rooted identity, a secure identity, the first thing to admit is how insignificant and weak you are. Lord, I need you. We sang that earlier. And you can only do that and not despair if you know that God loves you so much that he has sent his son to die for you. Think of someone in your life right now with whom you're experiencing conflict. Maybe it's someone in your family, a friend, a roommate, someone at work. You feel like they're in the wrong. You may even have been hurt by them. You're sure you know what is right, what is best. But could you take up that cross, that difficult relationship, and could you confess your own limits and weakness? Could you admit that you have contributed to the conflict, that maybe you are wrong in at least some part? Could you repent of your pride and seek reconciliation just by listening, for starters? To the extent that your identity is rooted in God's sacrificial love for you, only then will you be able to admit your own sin to see yourself as you really are, not delusionally, not as someone who is always in the right, and to change through repentance and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And the best way to do that is in community, not only the community of the church that gathers for knocks here in this room on Sunday mornings, but in relationship with others, in small groups, in home churches as we call them where you can be prayed for and pray for others, where you can talk about what this means. What is it for you to take up your cross? How do you see Jesus? To find your true self in Christ sets you free from false identity. How have you tried to gain the world? We're all doing it. Is it through accomplishments, 
your career, maybe the wealth you've accumulated, how much money you make a year. Maybe it's through helping others and being a good person. Or does your sense of worth arise from your family and friends, from pleasing your parents, pleasing someone in your life? Or maybe your value comes from the love you get in a relationship or the love you're longing to have, to receive, to find someone who can offer you that love. These are all good things, but when they control you, when they are your life, then you will find that you lose yourself and you will lose the world too. All these things will fail you. They are not the rock on which you can build a life that will flourish and endure according to God's truth. Sometimes God removes these false supports from our lives as a severe mercy so that we really know our weakness. In that case, the harder invitation from Jesus is to trust him through those challenges and to return to depending on him first. If you're in a place right now where you're dealing with something like that, with adversity, with suffering, then don't let Satan or anyone else tempt you into thinking that God has stopped caring about you or that he's abandoned you. Jesus invites you to see your cross in the light of his cross always. Jesus went to Jerusalem to suffer all these things so that you would know that he is still with you always. He lost everything and was forsaken by even his heavenly father. And the greatest good the world has ever known, the hope of the resurrection came out of that. Jesus promises to meet you in every circumstance. And then he sends us out to serve others, no matter what condition we're in. And he does it not in ways that are easy or convenient, but in ways that put others first and bring healing into our world that in the end restore our souls. Our sacrifices don't earn his favor, but they bring us into the joy and peace of our salvation. That's what the final verse here means when it says that Jesus is going, that Jesus is going to come in his Father's glory and reward each person according to what they have done. It's not a threat. It's the promise and hope of a world made right and overflowing with God's goodness. So look at Jesus again. Find ways in particular during this season of Lent that you can do that. Take the time. Jesus is the crucified God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, but his life was no success story. Christians believe that Jesus, this spiritual leader who failed so dramatically, opens the way to eternal life. At his worst and at his lowest point on the cross, he reveals to us nothing less than God's truth and wisdom. And so the cross of Christ invites us to repent, to change our minds. It demands a conversion. It overturns our assumptions about what is success, and it leads us into the love of those who are God-forsaken and abandoned. Jesus himself calls us away from a life of self-promotion and onto a path of service and self-sacrifice. It doesn't make sense according to the wisdom of the world. And yet, through Christ and Christ crucified, God defeats evil and forgives all our sins. 
He enters into our suffering. He identifies with us even to the point of death. And so our faith rests on Jesus alone. And we see him most clearly at the cross. And as we respond by taking up our crosses and by following him. Thanks be to God who loves us like this, like we never could have imagined. Let's take a few minutes to reflect on a couple of questions. First of all, how have you lost your life for Jesus lately? Can you point to something specific in that regard? And secondly, do you see your own crosses in the light of the cross of Christ? And as you reflect on that, you could pray and ask the Holy Spirit to use your suffering to, do, to draw you closer to God and to help you find and go deeper in your true identity with Jesus.